Hello and welcome back to Control Alt Delete. This is a replay of an episode with the brilliant Martha Beck from last year. If you haven't heard of Martha Beck, you have so much in store for you. She is an incredible person. She is a Harvard trained sociologist. She has three degrees from Harvard. She's a world renowned life coach and she was most famously Oprah Winfrey's life coach and a New York Times bestselling author. She has published nine nonfiction books, a novel and more than 200 magazine articles, having been a really fantastic monthly contributor to O, the Oprah magazine, for 17 years. Since this episode aired, she has released a new book called The Way of Integrity, which I've become slightly obsessed with and might have listened to on audiobook quite a few times. She presents a four-stage process for helping anyone find their integrity again, a sense of purpose, emotional healing, and a life free of mental suffering. I got so much from the book. You really have to read it to understand how far into this topic she goes. And I really recommend it on audiobook because of her very soothing and kind voice. I hope you enjoy listening to this replay. And here it is. This is a bit of a moment because I have spent my whole lockdown consuming everything Martha Beck, my guest today, has ever written. So this just feels really special. So thank you so, so much. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I don't know if you've heard that from other people kind of navigating towards more uplifting, inspiring books, maybe. But have you seen some sort of uplift towards people coming to you during lockdown? You're such an inspiring person. It feels like, you know, people are going back in to themselves. Oh, thank you. Some people, I I actually have seen that. I've seen uh, more people who are interested in the trainings that I do online and all these, when I expected interest in that to drop off, it actually surged. So yeah, there have been more people coming to my online broadcasts and stuff. There are also people shouting at me in anger. So I don't want to <laughs> say that I'm, that it's a hundred percent positive, but there has been an increase in attention because if nothing else, no one can leave that house. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you've been doing some really amazing kind of virtual things as well to help people along. I've loved the gathering room. Oh, thank you. It's nice to just feel like there's someone there to guide you gently through this turbulent time. But um, I just wanted to start off by, I guess, telling the listeners a bit about you because I'm sure everyone has heard of you. But if they haven't, I feel like people could look at your CV and just think, you know, that you followed a path to Harvard and then you became this really amazingly successful career coach and worked with Oprah but it wasn't actually easy for you was it at the beginning you you actually you had to kind of move away from your childhood sort of community and and what you've always been told and I find that the most inspiring thing above everything really thank you yeah I was raised in in Utah which is really not part of the United States culturally I was raised in the heart of Mormonism and and my father was a big cheese in the Mormon church so it's not very typical for a young Mormon girl from Utah to just romp off to Harvard I didn't even know where it was when I got in. I had to go look in the encyclopedia to see where it was. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then I I just stayed there because I didn't know how to do anything but keep going to school. So I got I got three degrees there, and, uh, and then and, and had three children. Got married, had three children too, and then ran afoul of my early religious training, and 
and left the Mormon church rather publicly, which is the only sin worse than murder ends up in, yeah, like uh, literally at 28, I lost every relationship that I created before the age of 20 or so. And, um, entire family, all my friends. So it was very, very tough. And and I had a son with Down syndrome in there as well. So that wasn't easy. And getting my degrees with three kids, one with a disability. None of it was, yesterday wasn't easy, Emma. It's never been easy. (laughs) When will it get easier? (laughs) but that's the thing because in your books and especially steering by starlight which i reread recently when you talk about these moments of like wandering into this burning pit of fire and uprooting your entire life and going through horrible things and your life falling apart you, you know you're coming from a place of you have actually been there and you have been at the depths of despair in your own life it, yeah. You can really feel that in your work. It's not just you're telling people That's the best so possible nice. route. Martha Beck, you'll feel her despair. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose you're reflecting back kind of a long time ago but well, in the book. But. There's a theory, a uh, psychological theory, that is far below the realm of normal as you've dipped. Uh, that's how high you go above it if you finally manage to crawl your way out. And I think that's really true. I think everything is the raw material for its opposite. So if you want a lot of courage, you get a lot of frightening situations. If you want a lot of joy, you get a lot of grief. And you have to, the, the trick is it's like a puzzle room. You have to find your way out. And that's the, the self-help stuff that I've written. I've never, I never intended to be a self-help writer or a coach. But once you have crawled your way out of a pit, people who are in the same pit often say, excuse me, but... Uh, how? <laughs> and then mm. you end up as a self-help author. Who knew? <laughs> I know, because someone else that I've been um, getting really into recently, I think through you and also through Elizabeth Gilbert, is Byron Katie. Oh, yeah. And how, you know, you, and you talk so much about freeing your mind. And I love that, the concept that you talk about in, in many of your books of like the, the jail bars that you hold in front of you when actually you're not really in a cell you're just kind of making one up and I I I can't think of a more useful thing to get us through lockdown because we're just in our own heads constantly yeah well I wish we were just in our own heads the fact is our heads are peopled they are populated with everyone who's ever influenced us culturally so um I just wrote another book that's out next year but it's about culture versus nature and, and it's based on the divine comedy because that's what all good self-help should be based on. Now, I really think Dante had an experience that's very much like what we're going through. He was lost and confused in the woods, and then he went into hell and basically burned up all his preconceptions and then had to find a way to actualize his new understanding and ended up in paradise. And that is actually the hero's saga that people really truly go through it's not just a literary device it's a uh, when you read the divine comedy that way it is an actual roadmap to healing and byron katie went the same path total despair 10 years of agoraphobic miserable hostile depression and then bang one morning woke up unable to believe her own thoughts which meant she was free of her culture and that's what happened to me when I left Mormonism. I free, well, I chose to have a baby with Down syndrome. He was prenatally diagnosed. I was almost 24 weeks along and very bonded to him. 
so I'm pro-choice, 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 but I bonded to this baby and everyone at Harvard told me I was making this hideous mistake and my career was over. And I looked at the Harvard culture around me and I was like, I don't actually see you guys being as happy as I would like to be. Like you're successful, but you don't look happy. And then I went, you know, I looked at Mormonism and thought, you know, this isn't working for me either. So every cultural influence I'd had growing up, I, I eventually left. Byron Katie left hers all in one night. Boom! You know, this huge awakening. <laughs> and then and Dante lost his in some sort of psychological process that he reflected in the Divine Comedy. And I'm starting to think that the great merit of the COVID age is that culture is falling apart around us. Yes. Yeah. And and it yeah. does it outside us and as it does so all of us are being compelled to live differently. So we're losing it from within ourselves and we're all on this void. And here's the amazing thing. Never in the history of the world has one thing happened to everyone on earth at once. Like how mind blowing is that? There are seven and a half billion of us. And within a few weeks, we were all focused on the same topic. Never happened. It's crazy. I, I, Cause I think you mentioned on your podcast, I think, it was there that you said the world has never been quieter, that the yeah. world has actually never been at this level of kind of calm, it just in terms of like decibels. Yes. So the seismologists started measuring things about a hundred years ago. And there's just always a certain amount of rumbling in the earth. And I guess they assumed a lot of it was just seismic activity from geothermal things and, and all those natural forces. But what they've found is that it's quieter now than it's been since they started measuring we've been making so much noise <laughs> and now we're making less and it's kind of amazing. It is amazing. And also back to kind of what you just said about, you know, breaking free from culture. One thing I really love about your work, and I'm sure people have said this to you before, is you bring a humor to your work. You know, I find myself laughing to myself through your books, even though you're <laughs> talking about quite serious things, there's just little nuggets of humor and I mean, surely that's kind of what it's all about is it feels like you're, you become lighter when you get rid of all the culture stuff. I, I think so. Yeah. I think that and the people I've met who have done this in any, by any route, by like some sort of personal crisis, by a religious path, if that's what turns you on through a, through psychiatry, whatever it is, one of the things that shows you someone's actually lost culture and come out on the other side is that you start to laugh the absurdity I mean, the absolute absurdity you know when you have someone who is ostensibly the most powerful man in the world saying that we should inject ourselves with household cleansers <laughs> if you don't laugh you, you just go jump off a bridge somewhere so you can have it make you suicidally depressed or you can find it absolutely hilarious and i like to choose door number two <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's the thing about as well your amazing podcast bewildered which i've mentioned a few times now but i it's honestly so so brilliant is it takes you out of your day-to-day -day grind because of the way that you so brilliantly compare us well not compare us we are animals yeah. but you use so you but you use so many references to to do with at the animal world and how we act and it just it just puts everything into perspective um well, i'm guessing you. maybe that's going to be in the new book but i i love how much oh, yeah. you just kind of sit and watch your nature and your back garden quite a lot oh constantly and I, i've been obsessed with animals since i was 
tiny, tiny, tiny. By the time I was two, I knew we had this book called Mammals of the World, had 700 species in it, and I learned them all before I was two. I never ran away from home, try, you know, in any, like, rebellious way, but I did desperately try to run away from home to find any area where there would be wild animals. I, I would get picked up by the police when I was three or four years old, just wandering in the outskirts of town, <laughs> looking for, like, otters. And so I'd read about them and then, oh, I got to get that. But yeah, I, and then I I moved about uh, seven years ago, I moved to a, near a national park, to a property adjacent nas- a national park in California and just spent all my time tracking animals and sitting outside covered in birdseed, letting the animals come sit on me and, and meditating that way. I think that's cheating. I have not read about that in any meditation, like how-to books, but... I will tell your listeners right now, if you're a meditator, go outside, put a bird feeder there, and then sprinkle yourself with bird seed. You'll get all kinds of woodland creatures. It's amazing. And, and I just always felt uh, intensely connected. To and, and now I live in the woods in Pennsylvania, and it's there are foxes and things. But here's the thing, Emma. When you start watching the animals and talking, the, like being with the animals, Things start to happen that should not happen according to our mechanistic worldview. Like in in this last book, which is I've tried to be very like I read probably 50 books on on physics writing this and they're virtually not mentioned. I just wanted the background. But I'm trying to understand things like I have repeatedly gone into wilderness situations and imagined a certain animal coming to me and it comes. Wow crazy like there are two in, in this last book i talk about two instances once i was driving across wyoming and it was big broad altiplano empty space and i thought in the morning when i set out i've never seen a pronghorn antelope which is the only american antelope and i thought i'd really like to see one and i felt this strange it's like if you move your hand in your sleep and you know that something's moving but it's not your brain something moved and I thought, well, that was strange. So a few hours later, I'm driving across this open plain and there, a smudge appears on the horizon. And I, I pulled over and parked the car and the smudge came toward me and it was a herd of pronghorn antelope at full gallop, raising a cloud of dust. They came right to my car and stopped at the car, at the only human, and these animals were hunted. They were not in a preserve or anything. And they just stood around my car breathing and I just sat in there and cried because it was so amazing. And then another story, and there are so many, but these are just two recent ones. I went to Sedona, Arizona, and I arrived late one night, and I had an interview in the morning, and then I had to leave again. It was this emergency visit. And I thought, well, I, I wish I could see a javelina while I'm here. Javelinas are peccaries. They're pigs, little furry desert pigs. Aww. Yes, they're very cute. They're like the size of a, I don't know, a Labrador retriever, but pig-like. And I thought, but it's it's late at night. I'm interviewing in the morning. I have to leave. I'm not going to, that's ridiculous. They're, you don't see them. And I'm in a hotel suite setting up an interview with an author. And there's a knock at the door and an assistant goes to the door and she yells, it's a pig. And we all run into the other room and there's a javelina standing at the door of the hotel room. And he just stood there. And then we opened the door. Someone opened the door 
and we sort of tiptoed outside and he just stayed within four or five feet of us. And then 20 or 30 more javelinas came out of the desert and just hung out with us. I love it. We were just staring at each other going, what? Why? But you know, it's the same thing. I feel when you really, sorry, this was a very long anecdote, but I felt it was worth the time because people don't believe that magic still exists. And I don't either. I believe in science, but something scientific happened. That was not random. Something. I mean, it knocked on the door. (laughs) But I feel like this is a theme that goes throughout definitely steering by starlight is there are so many things that happen that are coincidental, but not like spookily well-timed and, and also maybe when we're in the frame of mind that we're looking for it, it's even more magical because we're noticing things all the time. Yeah, Yeah, sure. It primes attention for sure. And I tried to explain things away for a long time by that. Here's the thing, Emma, when you leave culture, the, the, the sort of bivalve of culture is nature, right? So when you're not shaped by culture anymore, you start to let your nature shape you. And when your nature starts to shape you, you start to fit in with the rest of nature And so throughout my life, because I've been divesting of culture and going closer to nature, more and more of these really inexplicable things, inexplicable in terms of Newton's physics, they just keep happening. And I was trained as a sociologist and I was well-trained. So I know statistics and I know that the probabilities of things like this happening even once, let alone repeatedly, are vanishingly small. Something causal is going on. And what if we all discovered that because of COVID or because of unemployment or because the the whole socio socioeconomic pyramid of capitalism in the 20th century is, is sort of dissolving around us? What if it all comes to find us, this magic of nature? Yes. yes. And I know that a lot of people are finding it difficult to even say out loud some positives from a situation that is obviously completely tragic in many ways yeah. for so many people. But it's hard not to notice some of these magical moments of we're not in control and it's crazy to even think we are, which is yeah. what you've just explained in all your anecdotes of nature is how can you think you can control anything? We can't. No, there's absolutely no control. But what there is, is there's a kind of, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like there's a Taoist metaphor that says if you're rowing a boat and another boat hits you, if there's another person in it, you could have a big argument. You could feel persecuted. You can feel hurt. But if you look up and see that the boat is empty, there's no real reaction to it. And so people are... People are floating around in little boats thinking that they're steering the boats, but actually it's mostly cultural conditioning. It's like you gave the boat a good shove, but it has no rudder and no oars. So people are just floating around in these boats that were set in motion by their cultural background, smashing into each other and (laughs) feeling as if it's happening to them on purpose. But in the Taoist tradition, they say all boats are empty. All boats are empty. And when you disappear as a human and become part of nature, you realize that the water that holds you is what's moving you. And what happens when you let go and let go and let go, like Byron Katie's methodology is not about thinking new thoughts. It's about not thinking anything. It takes you into what in some Asian cultures is called don't know mind. You're just open. And what happens then is that you realize that the water is intelligent. 
And so you're not steering the boat exactly, but you're part of the water that's steering all the boats. And then you start Mm -hmm. to see order in it and you start to see comfort. And even when things go really, really wrong from a cultural standpoint, like when my son had Down syndrome or I was sexually abused as a child, even when things go very, very, very wrong, when you get out of the boat and dissolve into the water, all of it feels orderly and all of it feels like it's happening for you, not to you. I want to really clearly say that if you've had a child with a disability or you were sexually abused, you do not have to feel good about it. You do not have to feel good about it. It was bad. It was terrible. And I would do anything to keep you from experiencing it ever. But if you did, you have a lot of motivation to leave the boat, go into the water and find not control, but comfort, compassion, a kind of connection to the vast intelligence of nature. And and that heals all wounds. I really believe it does. It's an amazing way of looking at it. And, you know, anything that feels good in our own minds must just be the way forward. And I love that about both of your work. You, you touch on that so beautifully. The world, the world is how it is. And to try and change it constantly is to suffer, basically. Yeah. And, but the weird thing is to, to absolutely stop trying to change it means that you become it. And then it mm. feels purposeful. And then you're like, oh, I see. I see why this is happening. I understand this is a benevolent experience. Yeah, yeah. And it's so... It, I have to be very careful when I'm coaching people or when I'm writing because it's very easy to sound like I'm saying, what, you've been oppressed and destroyed by the world? Be happy. It's all good. I don't mean Mm -hmm. that. But I do believe that the function of suffering is to help us let go of the structures that are causing us to suffer. And it's what you just said, when it feels good in the, not just the mind, but the, the whole intuitive sensory capacity of the body and mind together when it feels good to all of that then you're going to go in a direction that 100 percent will run afoul of your culture somebody's going to be upset but you will find yourself you'll be yourself what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul when you lose the whole world and gain your soul you're like oh that was a fair trade Yes. I mean, I can't imagine what you went through when you left, but oh, thank God you did. Cause look at what you're bringing to everyone else as well. Oh, so That's very, very kind. I feel it. like everyone else is bringing it to me. Like I just ran out and hid in the open and people like you show up and I'm like, Oh, the world is good. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a really very simple example of what you just said, but I actually went for a run the other day and it started, it started just raining and, and thunder was happening and I was getting soaked. And normally I'd be annoyed that, you know, it was raining and I had to go home from my run and I just carried on running and I, and I really enjoyed it. Because ah. you, you can't just change, tell the weather to stop. It was just a moment of like noticing that my thinking had changed. How did you, did you, uh, did you notice the shift in real time or did you just notice that you no longer minded the rain? I just didn't mind it. And I felt, I felt quite, elated and I just felt like a joy that I just would have would have passed me by like before oh how interesting what do you think made that happen what do you think shifted you because it happened before the run 
I think honestly, I've just been consuming so many audiobooks during lockdown of, you know, yours and and other ones, and just I don't know. It's just these, you know, your your work has such an effect on people. Oh, thank you. I don't. It, yeah, know it's just my work, but I'm very glad to be part of it. It's definitely, definitely partly you. And um, I just wondered uh, just about your coaching. I, I wondered because a lot of people listening to this podcast might be living in a city in a job that not doesn't necessarily set them alight maybe all the time. And I know that you've you've coached some really successful kind of on paper individuals. And it, a bit in your book that really was quite eye-opening is when you told the story of this man who basically had millions and millions and millions of pounds and he kept getting like an extra million. He kept getting more and more and more and he kind of rang you up kind of crying basically saying when is it ever going to be enough yeah yeah. and that just spoke to me on such a deep level because i guess we're all sort of climbing some sort of ladder whatever that might be and it made me realize that i i truly people say you know having all that stuff probably won't make you happy but you've seen it you've seen it in real in real life you know that it doesn't Yeah, I've, I've, the whole thing, when I realized people were calling me a life coach, I thought, oh my God, that is the cheesiest title I've ever heard. Furthermore, it sets me quite a challenge. It means that I have to have a system that works for anyone's life. So I started like looking for extreme cases, which is one thing you're trained to do as a sociologist. So I worked with heroin addicts who were homeless on the streets of Phoenix. And I've worked with people in parts of rural South Africa. I've I've worked with billionaires. And they say human culture is built on a truth and a lie. And the truth is that if you have a warm fire and clothing and a good bowl of food, you'll feel better than if you don't. That's the truth. The lie is that if you have a billion plates of food and a billion fires and a billion warm houses, you're going to feel a billion times better. That's just not Mm -hmm. true. Just yesterday, I thought I may have to write another book about jobs because I read an article by a law professor who said that people in white collar top jobs are exhausting themselves for no reason, working 100 hour weeks, creating no value for the world, but losing all their joy. I read about a doctor, Mm. same thing, forced to work 48 hour shifts, even with the flu, infecting patients that he was operating on. Why? There was no purpose for it. Um, And then on the other end, people doing minimum wage jobs who are underemployed who are just being destroyed. But even people all the way up and down, the capitalist and, well, communism worked even worse in China and Russia. But all the way up and down the pyramid of society, people are being burnt out and spat out by the machine of production. And it's not offering anything to anyone. It's like a beast that eats people generates a gyre of plastic in the in the Pacific bigger than the state of Texas and then spits us out the other end to die. <laughs> and that's what we've created and we need to leave. A hundred percent we do. I mean, there was another episode of Bewildered that really spoke to me around that, what productivity even is and what it means and why we're so obsessed with the constantly doing of things. And um, yeah, it made me realize that some things I do just so I can feel like I'm doing something because I'm just distracting myself. And I think what you say about work and careers is just, oh, it it was amazing. So has that changed for you? Because you could, you, you know, you're a prolific writer and you, you work at home. You probably have your own hours. I don't know if you have a job job. Do you have a job job? Well, I have 
a few different things that I do that keep me busy but I think because I create my own schedule Mm. I can basically work forever and feel like I'm enjoying it but I think it was when Rowan Mm -hmm. um was saying that she felt good at being productive and she had this like warm feeling in her belly Mm -hmm. and you were explaining the difference between the oxytocin (laughs) and the what's the other one I don't know what I said but probably dopamine serotonin dopamine that was it and it was like doing it from a place of love and kind of being being relaxed is much better than doing it from like a really rushed place. And I think that's what I've been working on is I can still do my books and still make this podcast, but I don't have to do it from a place of ticking it off a list. Yeah. I can be in the, mo- in the moment more. Yeah, it's whether you're doing it uh, out of mania for an external reward or whether you're doing yeah. it out of love for the thrill of the doing. And I really hope that as so many people have stayed home from jobs. I mean, God bless our frontline workers who are out delivering the mail and running the grocery stores. May they all be given everything they wish. But for those who have been kept home from jobs that were basically meaningless, do we have to go back? Like, is this not the greatest opportunity to start doing things out of love? One thing I've noticed is how little my family seems to need since lockdown started. And because my son has a weak heart, and he's very susceptible. We've been unbelievably careful. Like without that, I might be more lax, but we've been very quarantined and you don't need a lot. No, I haven't bought any new clothes for months and I used to buy a lot of clothes and I don't need any more. I know. Like I'm ever, literally ever. naked right now. <laughs> no, <not. laughs> but I could be. <laughs> you could be back to nature. And honestly, I, I've worn, like, I have a pair of shorts. I like this pair of shorts. I have worn this pair of shorts every single day since it got warm. Since like the spring equinox, I intend to wear it well into winter. Well, wear them. And who will ever know? Exactly. (laughs) I just wanted to bring to the listener's attention one thing, and there's many things. If you follow Martha Beck, you will get many different tips like this. But I just wanted to talk about one thing that I learned from you that I do now a lot, which is calming myself down basically before something that's going to terrify me. So Mm. for example, and this is a very like kind of privileged example, but this will work for much scarier things. But for example, if I had to go on like a live radio show, I used to get, my heart used to beat really fast, used to get Mm -hmm. really sweaty. And I've been doing your trick, well, it's not a trick, but you know what I mean, where you kind of hug yourself and breathe really slowly Mm -hmm. and also look around the room at different things, different colors. And I can't tell you how much I have realized, I've just noticed that I'm so much more calm so much better at speaking and just happier and and more present. And it's just such a tangible change to something. Wow. Well, that shows you're really doing it. And if if, if people are willing to really do it, that stuff is biologically foolproof. You can't breathe slowly and still generate a ton of like cortisol and other and adrenaline and the other uh, fight or flight hormones. So, What's funny is that I've had so many editors of my books who've written in the margins, this makes no sense. And I'll write back, did you try it? And they're like, no, 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 explain it in words. You know, make me feel good through my mind. And all we have to do to feel good in many situations, as you just said, is to drop into the body. And the body is just an animal looking around at its, its scenario. And 
generally pretty calm. And if you can slow your breath, because only humans and aquatic mammals are able to hold their breath or slow it deliberately. And it's a trick we can play on our brain stem, which is the deepest layer of the brain that says, we're now going out of fight or flight and into rest and relax. And we're always, we toggle between those two states. So all you're doing is you're switching off your sympathetic nervous system, you're switching on the parasympathetic nervous system. And it's like magic, you know, it, it helps in literally every situation, a long, slow exhale. But I've met many people who prefer horse tranquilizers um, because taking a long, slow breath just seems too wacky. You know? uh, it's, yeah, why, why would you not? It's the fastest, cheapest way. And I'm, I can't wait to try it out with public speaking because yeah. I think that's that's always stemmed back to, I guess, in the in the nature world, you're, you're looking out at a sea of people that could want to eat you or hurt you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then your body, your body probably thinks you're in danger, but actually they all want to be there and they bought a ticket to see you. <laughs> yeah, you're a social primate. That makes it even worse because if you're driven out of the troop, you, you die alone. And for social primates, that's all geared even more. Like deer are like, I don't really care that much about a herd of deer. I like a herd of deer. Horses like a herd of horses. But baboons... Chimpanzees, they're much like, more like, oh boy, are they on my side or not? So we have these hair trigger ape mechanisms and we don't, we don't drive them well. But if we learn to drive them just minimally, it's, yeah, you can look at a herd of people, breathe out. And that's the important thing. When people say, take a deep breath, they go, <gasps> which does bring in more oxygen. But the thing is, it doesn't release carbon dioxide. And what the brain, what the body's measuring is how much carbon dioxide is in me. So if you breathe all the way out, get all the carbon dioxide out of your lungs, that's when your body goes, oh, I'm among friends. It's all great. Mm. <laughs> I used to faint when I had to speak in public. Not, I'm not talking about getting the jitters. I mean, down on the floor. It really works. It really works. Right. Before we wrap up, I have one more thing I want to ask you about, which is, and this is something that someone was, um, well, I actually posted about your book on Instagram and I got the most amount of replies going, oh my God, I need this book. I mentioned the bit about how you sort of give some tools on how to analyze dreams. Oh yeah. And that got the biggest response. People were like, I really want to know how to figure out what the hell I'm dreaming about. And would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's fascinating. I, I think, I hope this is still true. It used to be on my website. You could buy a little, just very inexpensively, a little sort of graph that you can use for dream analysis. And it makes mm. it a lot simpler. So if this sounds a bit complex, write it down and it won't be. It's based on Jungian dream analysis, which is very complex but I don't really go down the route of all the symbols mean this or that. What I believe is that everybody's dream symbology comes from a personal lexicon of symbols. So if I dream of lilacs, I might be dreaming about my childhood because we have lilacs in the garden. If you dream of lilacs, maybe you are dreaming of death because you smelled them at a funeral, right? So your right. meaning will be different from mine. But I believe in Jung's idea that every aspect of the dream is an aspect of the self. And if the more alien they seem in the dream, the more the self is fragmented and needs to connect. So what I do is just, I just have people say their dream for me. And then I write down all the symbols in the dream. So say you dreamed of an elephant and the elephant, you know, was swimming in a lake. I'd write down elephant swimming lake. Okay. Then 
this is the part that I got from my high school acting class. You become the symbol in the dream. Like you would say, I am the elephant in the dream. Not all elephants, this elephant in the dream. And people resist, 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 not only because it seems stupid, but because it's an aspect of the self that's fragmented and not connected, and they, they are still resisting it. And so what I use is a list of adjectives. I say, elephant, describe yourself. And the elephant might say, I am big, I am happy, I am sly. And the person would say, sly? Where did that come from? People find themselves blurting these adjectives that don't that they don't expect. And then you say, what is your purpose? Why are you here? And the elephant will tell you. And you can just switch back and forth being the elephant and uh, and being yourself. And then you say, what, what's your message? And they have messages. And then weirdly enough, the act of swimming will be another symbol that will give you a message. So it'll be like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's very powerful for the dreamer to go through this. But I've had other people watch me do a dream analysis and go, this is weird. But for you, as you unfold your dream, we should have recorded, we should have done an analysis of one of your dreams, Emma, because it's more powerful that way. Yes. Maybe, maybe we could do that one day because I, I can't remember it. I, I forget them, but I've been writing some down. So yeah. I mean, I've, tr- I've been trying out. You can get just a fragment. Like once I had a dream and all I remembered of it was the number 49. And I thought, what? What? I, I almost didn't analyze it. And then I became the number 49 and all this stuff started pouring out. I am the 1849 gold rush, the 49ers who went to California in 1849. I mean, going to California, I'm also the age. When I was 49 years old, I bought a property in California and moved there. This was like five years after having the dream. But that's what the dream was about. That's, it's amazing. It's, but I guess it all ties into kind of what you were saying before that we have to be open to finding these things as well, because that's what the magic is all about. Yeah, everything is connected. I mean, quantum mechanics, and I say this having read serious books about quantum mechanics, not just watched what the bleep do we know. Some versions of quantum mechanics can only explain what we see experimentally by saying that all of us are just wave properties. We're all energies that share one wave function through the entire universe and we're all entangled at a subatomic level so there's definitely a field of something out there and none of the equations say what consciousness is we know it has a very powerful effect but we don't know what it is so i just prefer to take it as a probable maybe that the whole universe is conscious um, I may have, <laughs> I went through a period of, uh, I was doing research with an anthropologist and instead of giving me data, she asked me if I'd ever bent a fork or a spoon. We were at a restaurant and I said, no. And she said, I picked up a fork and tried to bend it. And we were talking and she taught me, well, it has a, it has a rudimentary consciousness. And if you connect with it, it will bend for you. And I was like, okay, that's the craziest. You've been taking a lot of psychedelic mushrooms. And then, as we talked, the fork suddenly became flexible and gave way and bent double in my hands. And wow, I could feel that it and I had sh- a shared consciousness. It sounds ridiculous, but I was holding a bent fork. And I, I've done so, my entire life is sort of a, a romp through how magical can things get when you let go of culture. Yes, I absolutely love it. I love it so much. And I just feel like so grateful that you and your amazing brain can basically read you, but you can read all of the books and 
digest it for us <laughs> so th- thank you because you you can make sense of so much stuff that you know I, d- I don't think I could ever read other things that you read so you're bringing it to us so thank you you're bringing it to us so it, we're, we're just one thing we're just one wave function both of us we're talking to ourselves we well, thank you so much because you've been in my ears. Um, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts recently. So to do this is just brilliant. And um, I've really enjoyed it. And if people want to pre-order your new books, I know that I just I know that it's not out till next year, but I think that's going to come around so quickly and I just can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's called um, The Way of Integrity. Brilliant. So people can go and order it now. Yep. I've, I've seen it on Amazon. I've seen it online. So we can grab a copy and... And um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your work and for inviting me on. It's been a huge privilege. 